Since we launched our podcast, The Giving Leader, just a little over a month ago, we've had over a thousand leaders download and listen, and, and thank you for being one of those. It's The Giving Leader, and I'm Phil Ling, the host. I'm also the founder of The Giving Church, our consulting company, thegivingchurch.com. You can go there, download our free book on generosity and the impacts of generosity in North America that we see coming. But today's episode is one of my favorite. Grant Skeldon is going to be with us. Grant has written a book about millennials, and it's the passion generation. He leads a dynamic ministry in the Dallas, Texas area, but really he's all over the country, and for that matter, travels worldwide speaking on the subject. So Grant's going to be our guest. Thanks for being part of the journey on The Giving Leader. And now let's spend some time with Grant Skeldon. I'm Phil Ling. I'm the host. I'm also the founder of thegivingchurch.com. That's the brainchild I had years ago where I work with churches around the United States and faith-based organizations on two areas, leadership development and generosity. You can cast vision of where you want to go, but then generosity is what fuels it. How the heck are we going to get there? How do we fuel these things financially, especially with the changing dynamics in North America? You can go to thegivingchurch.com and download our book, The Coming Generosity Tsunami, that talks about those changes. But every week I try to bring a different leader from around the country with a different little slant and background on leading and developing leaders. And I am thrilled to have Grant Skeldon with me today. Grant resides in the greater Dallas area, which is a lot. If you say greater Dallas, that's like a lot. You know, you're, you're all <laughs> over the place. The Metroplex. Uh, Grant has written a book that is out on Zondervan, and it's called The Passion Generation. His, he also, Grant, in addition to his book, The Passion Generation, ha- leads the initiative network in the Dallas area where he brings a lot of other young leaders together, representing hundreds of churches. He's had a dynamic impact already, and I'm thrilled to have him. Grant, man, thanks for hanging out with me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Phil. I uh, crossed paths with you at Exponential some time back, had a mutual friend introduced us, and you know, Exponential is that place for the gang to get together that loves to plant churches and talk about planting churches. Um, you have a unique slant in ministry, and, and if I'm putting words in your mouth, tell me I'm all wrong. I, part of it, when looking at your book, it was like trying to explain the misconceptions of the millennials to people like me as much as anything else. Is that right. fair? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, the book is definitely designed for pastors that are trying to reach millennials, parents that are trying to raise millennials, and um, even business leaders that are just trying to figure out kind of how to retain millennials. Uh, So it it wasn't for young people. However, a lot of young people have really, really liked the book. And I think it's because most books on millennials and most content on millennials is negative and ironically not written by millennials. And so this is one of the first, I guess, large bodies of work on the next generation that's actually designed by the next generation, which is kind of ironic because it'd be like reading a book on women written by men or uh, <laughs> a book on black people and how to reach the black community, but it was written by white people. Yeah, so I, gotta, I, I think it's I, a breath I, of fresh air for young people to see that there's actually adequate representation. I think without too hard a trying, we could find examples where both of those have been done. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> on, on the reach, uh, talking about black folks from white f- perspective and women and all that stuff. Uh, tell me, give me just off the top of your head, a typical misconception about the generation, 
and your your spin on why it's a misconception? Uh, I think, I mean, a big premise of the book is that uh, I think the misconception is, one, we don't have a millennial problem because the bigger problem is that we have a discipleship problem. Uh, the first half of the book is actually how do we not focus on tips and tricks on how to reach the next generation uh, because that will change in five to ten years. And instead, what if we, instead of like following trends, which always change, like I think we could all look at clothes we wore 10 years ago or clothes we wore 20 years ago and be, at the time we thought it was some of the coolest clothes there were, but now it's like a joke. Uh, it's like we would be kind of, we would laugh and be embarrassed to be seen in it. But at the time that was the trend. And so I just think the church very quickly adopts trends instead of the timeless work that will always be effective is discipleship. And that's something I just don't think we always associate with the next generation. But for me, that's a big misconception. We don't have a millennial problem. We have a discipleship problem. And unless we fix that discipleship problem, we'll have, just, we'll have a worse Gen Z problem uh, because we'll be even fewer young leaders that could disciple the next generation coming after them because we focus so much on reaching them instead of mobilizing them to make disciples. Is there... Is the approach to discipleship different or even affected by how old the person is that I'm trying to disciple? I think so. I think that's a good question. Is like, like uh, I my the book I wrote definitely is focusing on how do you disciple millennials or young singles especially. Uh, in my opinion, that's the best, sweetest time for them to get mentored and or discipled because uh, the form of discipleship that I advocate for is. A discipleship that isn't come and meet with me like let's go to get coffee and talk go through the bible well one of the biggest questions i always get asked is like grant what's what's the best curriculum for discipleship which is an easy question because it's the bible um <laughs> but i also don't think discipleship is the memorization of a curriculum i do think uh we look at what jesus did he didn't say come and meet with me he said come and follow me and so going to your question um does it change by what age you're at in a sense when you're a young single your greatest commodity is free time. Like hmm. you don't have to get a babysitter. You don't have to ask your wife for permission. You don't have to ask your husband for permission. You don't have to like, you can just go and do whatever you want. Um, and so to not leverage that time that I think will impact the trajectory of the rest of our lives or in our young single years, um, I think the enemy gets us to waste a lot of those t that time, not maybe the uh, running from the church and or, drinking, drugs, all that kind of stuff. I think just wasting it, hanging out with a whole bunch of other young people our own age, trying to figure out life. And so doing what is right in our own eyes. And so, yeah, I do think it changes, but the follow me form of discipleship, I think can work for any age, as long as you're hungry enough to carve out the time for it. You know, what's interesting, Grant, is I've been around church planters for years, and because that's where I came from and planted a church in Seattle. Yeah. And so I've, that's that's been my peers. And forever, guys that were good at getting the nickels and noses and the numbers of planting churches did it by going after young couples with small kids. Yeah. And, and everything, if you think about it, was geared toward that. So now millennials, some married, lots of singles, um, when it comes to programming, and I don't, I don't want to get hung up on programs, but when it comes to programming, is there a difference? Do we have a difference? The church that is really successful at hitting that group, is it, does it look different? Uh, as generally, the church as a whole, especially, we'll just look at the American church, is not successful at reaching the next generation. Like, right. uh, I, I wouldn't have a job if, if it was successful. Um, and so 
I I haven't got to because to me a, a wise church and and I'd even go so far to say just a Jesus obedient church because it's not like I'm coming up with like hey we need mentors like this is actually at the center not even center the very beginning of the Great Commission go and make disciples right. Um, and so I often get asked, like, what church is the best at making disciples? And I've had a really hard time answering that question because um, most churches I know, and please, if you are listening to this, I mean, my email is grant at initiativenetwork.org. Please send me. I, I need references. I want references. I don't desire for this to be the case. But um, I have found that most churches do not even measure discipleship. Like they don't know how good or how bad they're doing. So when I get asked how what church is doing it well, I'm like, well, I, churches don't even measure if they're doing good, bad, or whatever. Like that's not even a measurement for them. And when I was younger, I had a mentor tell me what you count and what you celebrate creates your culture. And so um, I I have had a lot of churches, and it's very actually it's hard for me to find any churches that don't measure how much money comes in. <laughs> um, very hard for me to find churches that don't measure the attendance, but I, I'm very hard pressed to find the churches that measure discipleship. And so, what I'm not saying is, hey, you, if you're if you're not measuring money, um, then that's unwise. That's bad stewardship. You're not measuring attendance. So, what I'm not saying is switch this for that. I'm just saying add a different scorecard. And so, that's that's just a, a big. It's been a difficult question for me. Is there are churches that can attract millennials. And they'll do the big events. And there's usually a handful, a very small handful of them in each city that can do that. But by and large, there's dozens, hundreds, depending on the city. I live in a city with 4,800 churches. So right. thousands of other churches that are not, quote, unquote, successful, um, if we're going to measure success by attendance. Well, yeah, I've got a few. First of all, I agree with everything you said. I've got a few uh, pet peeves. Average church, in America, yeah. <laughs> average church in America runs 90 on Sunday. 75% of all churches are 150 or less on Sunday. The reason they're that size is because most of the people in those churches are somehow connected to each other. It's like yeah. they're, yeah. they're bigger exactly. cells, they're extended family kind of a thing. Yeah. So right away, when you look at 360,000 churches in the United States, there's only about 10, 20% of them are actually reaching beyond that initial group. Mm -hmm. That that so, so right away. I love the whole... Uh, analytic piece of it because when i show up you know, in my world um i have to fight and you'd be amazed how many churches don't even want to talk about attendance because theirs is probably declining and they don't really want to know yeah and it's it they'll talk about a feeling oh sunday felt good <laughs> it's like okay that's great that's a little subjective but okay i got you the the one thing you can't lie about is dollars you know, do you have people supporting what it is you're trying to do? But when you look at the discipleship piece, trying to measure that, I, I spoke at a church in Virginia um, yesterday. I was trying to remember what day it was. Yesterday. <laughs> and, and they're really making a hard shift toward embracing the whole culture of true discipleship. And, and it's really, it's a large church and it's a, it's, it's a difficult process. But then how do you measure it? So what are the analytics that we look for? Because if you're not careful... In the, it, with us preacher types, it's that we start having programs, you know, like, okay, how many people show up at the program you had and what, when did it meet and what was the, the curriculum for navigators you bought and, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and all that. So how, how would you, you know, like, how would you take a, a temperature of a church? What would you be looking for? Yeah. And, and Phil, I would also say 
any church that even wrestled through like, okay, is it curriculum or is it this? I love that. I mean, cause that's all making steps forward. That's why when people uh, ask me again, like what, so what do you think we should do if we did one thing? I would just say measure discipleship. And I know that's actually a ton of meetings and a ton of conversations and a ton. It's, it's that one thing that invokes so many other things, but it's, it's going to be hard for me to say like, well, you go disciple someone. Um, cause then, let's just say if we measure discipleship, then you have to define what are we as a church going to say discipleship is. And then two, how, how do we get our people plugged into it? Three, like it's going to force all those necessary questions for me personally. Um, I'm going to measure how many people even have a discipleship relationship or, or a mentorship relationship. And so I could measure like uh, mentorship again, how many people in our church, if it's 90, it's even easier how many people in our church have a frequent meeting with someone younger in the faith? Doesn't even have to go to our church, but someone younger in the faith in our church. If it's 10%, great. Let's try to get it to 15, maybe 20% by the end of the year or two years. I don't even care if it's three years. I just want to see that there is actual strategy towards growing the culture of discipleship. And then how many of our people aren't just meeting regularly with someone younger in the faith? How many of them are including someone in, in their in their life. Maybe it's their family life. Maybe it's their work life, their church life, their personal life. In the book, I mean, I've spent the, six, the first six chapters practically talking about what I think discipleship could look like. I, I'm not saying that I've found the way to disciple. I just, I, 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 I found a way. And if people want to uh, build off of it, that's great. Um, but I do think that um, the best model in a very busy world because I, I want to give a lot of grace that the number one reason people don't disciple, in my opinion, is they're way too busy. And they truly aren't. I mean, I joke, but I've never met a man who's got a full-time job, a wife, kids, and is just like twiddling their thumbs on a weekend thinking, what am I going to do with all my free time? Like, there is no free time. And so I realized in America, it's going to be very hard to make disciples. And that's why you got to think, instead of adding something to your calendar, include someone in your calendar. And that's what Jesus did, is he included people that would join his life. And, and that's where I got to call out my own generation that isn't the best of this. They're terrible at being hungry enough to, one, follow through with your commitments, uh, two, carve out time where you're not hanging out with your friends, but you're going to go be with an uh, older generation that are wiser than you, and, and ask great questions while you're with these leaders that have been there and done that. Let me ask you, this is maybe a dumb question. You can say, hey, tell us dumb. Uh, with millennials, are they any more more or less resistant to the gospel than previous generations? So, so in other words, when I was yeah, of a, when I was of a millennial age, I'm not a millennial, but when I was of a millennial age, I probably wasn't that interested in a lot of stuff on a spiritual thing because I was young. Yeah. Um, so, is it is it any different, or are there peculiarities about today's millennials? Yeah, that's, uh, I might, let me share a little bit of just what comes to mind immediately. I mean, yes and no. Yes, I think they are resistant more in a part. There's, there's different profiles for young people that I've seen. It's such a diverse group. But I have definitely met many that, I mean, most young people that don't want to go to church, it definitely has to do with church hurt or um, the way the church is perceived is to be very judgmental. Um, and, uh, or if it's not a judgmental Christians, they're very silent. And so they're not the one speaking on behalf of the church because 
it's either very loud, judgmental Christians. And then most of the, we got to remember that most unbelievers don't know about like the silent. Well, I don't know. I don't believe that at all, but I, they don't talk at all. And so they're not, they don't get any voice. Um, and they don't get to be any good PR, I guess. And so it's kind of harder and harder to want to associate with this group that comes off as very mean and unloving. Like one thing I, I said in the book is simply Yahoo, put in Yahoo uh, and search, why are Christians so? And see the words that populate. Because there's not a lot of good ones. It's a lot of <laughs> negative. Like why are Christians so unhappy, bigoted, um, judgmental, hypocritical? It's, the list is so long of negative stuff. That's what the real world is sincerely in the privacy of their home wondering about Christians right now. And so as you're a young person and you're like, why would I want to be a part of this group that I didn't even contribute this such a negative outlook on, and now I got to join it, um, it, it could become very difficult. I once heard Tim Keller, it was a private meeting with some leaders, and he said 20 years ago, he said the culture deemed the church irrelevant, but now the culture deems the church hostile. So that's again not a not a lot a lot of young people they want to join a cause they don't want to join some hate cause is what it can sometimes come off as and so then too though I would say uh, I'm excited about Gen Z in some ways not all but in some ways that they will be one of the first generations that like they're not even de church they're just fully unchurched um, and so like telling the gospel stories is truly like I don't know how this thing ends um, or I don't know like certain parts of each of these little stories. And so I, I get excited of that, about that. And I do I get excited also about any young Christian, especially young Christian leader, um, is going to have to have a very sincere, honest, real faith because uh, you don't get points for being a Christian in the next generation. One of my big questions in the book is, why is the most cause-oriented generation in the world right now not associating itself with the most cause-oriented organization in the world right now, the church. Um, and I'm a guy that's a nonprofit or a, a parachurch guy, I guess, if you want to say that. Um, and, I, and I realize and know that there's a certain type of, I would even say, go so far to say anointing, but especially authority that the church has that I will, I will not have as a, as a Christian joined to a church and under uh, submission of a church, absolutely. But um, yeah, the church is the hope of the world. I do believe that. And the church has I mean, my nonprofit, you tell me 10 years from now it's not around, I wouldn't be shocked, or 30 years from now. Um, but the church, even though it often is behind sometimes, it always adapts and it always changes. And it's always been, I do think, is relevant. And so uh, I've had a hard time with, like, why is this the most, there's no cause in the world that has a bigger eternal impact on the lives of people than the church. But, yeah, the, the next, this generation that's dying to be a part of the cause I mean, they'll put an ice bucket on their head. They'll go try to look for Coney. They'll do all these different things. They're dying to join a march or whatever, like to be a part of something that matters. Um, I personally think why that is, is I think the most cause-oriented organization in the world has neglected its greatest cause, which was the cause that its founder dedicated his whole ministry to, which was discipleship, and then chose his final words, which I think should be, if it's his last words, I think they should be our first priority is go and make disciples. And so clearly, I mean, I keep, I'm a gong that just keeps going back to, <laughs> hey, when, when, when you don't actually do what your founder said to go do and you just want to like keep hearing about it or tell and have the most cool-looking, flashy sermons about it, but not go do it, measure it, or call people up to it, 
Um, I don't think we're losing the next generation because we're calling them to too much. I think we're calling them to way too little. And there are nonprofits and causes that will call them to more than the church will right now. Um, and so you just got to think about, and I'll finish with like the call to action for a church right now is not come and meet with me, mentorship. It's not come and follow me, discipleship. The call to action for a church right now is come and listen to me. In a generation that could Google anything, content is the least valuable thing it's ever been. <laughs> and that's going to be the go-to for the church right now is not come and meet with me. We're not going to measure mentorship. Not come and follow me. We're not going to measure discipleship. Just come and listen to me. And and the world is better at doing that kind of thing. But that's not our that's not our game. Like uh, alone, I'm not saying don't go preach the gospel at all. I'm just saying maybe we need to change the vehicle in which we introduce people to the gospel. And maybe it's the way that Jesus did. And maybe we're all here today not because the five thousand um, at Sermon on the Mount, like. Maybe there's a reason. This is a big one for me. It's like, maybe there's a reason why Jesus would leave the 5,000, the big event that we think is like the game changer, um, to go be with the 12. Like, literally the worst follow-up plan ever. Like, Billy Graham would have got fired. (laughs) It's just leave the 5,000. He didn't start a church. He didn't start a mega church or a conference, just left the the 5,000 for 12. And and to me, it's like, but we're here for the 12 way more because we're here of what the 5,000 did. And so I do think the call to action, if the church has come and listened to me, the call to action going to your question for the nonprofit isn't come and listen to me or even really, it's like get out of your comfort zone because there are people in need in other parts of the country, our city, or in the world that need your help. And then there's this generation that's like wanting to be a part of something big. And so that's where, unfortunately, a gospel-less cause has probably drawn a lot of Christian young people to join and be more uh, more active in what they're doing than what the church is doing. No, I, I have nothing that I can complain about with that. I, I agree. I, uh, I, I fear when I talk to a lot of churches that when it comes down to staffing, programming, and, and money, it's to pull off next week. And that's what I like about church planners. Uh, too, Phil, is like, especially where, are you currently in Seattle or you said you did plant a church in Seattle? I planted in Seattle. I'm not there now. Okay. Like, I'm, I'm so spoiled and even, I'm, we're too saved down here in Dallas. Like, we're oversaved. <laughs> um, but like, up there, um, what's great is like, when you're a church planner, you can't think the whole, like, just get them to come every week. You have to think, especially up north, you have to think like, how do I get people to meet the Lord? And once I meet the Lord, how do I mature them into strong believers so I have to disciple them? Like, um, the, I think church planners are forced to focus more on mission and discipleship. And so that always, ironically, attracts a lot of young people forever. It's always been the case that young people are a little more attracted because they get bigger things to do, bigger responsibilities. They get to be a part of something when they join a church plan. Uh, two, I also think uh, college campus ministries have a ton of church ownership, I mean, a ton of young adult ownership, and they're forced to think discipleship as well, because campus ministries don't have the luxury to just consider membership. Like, hey, we just wanted you to be a member and be here for the rest of your life. They know they're going to lose the young people in their ministry, so they're forced to think, look, if we get four years with them at best, at best, probably three years or two, what can we do to equip them to launch them as missionaries? And so they're forced to think we're going to go deep as possible with a few rather than just 
get them to be members and give. And and I think if the church, which is a better cause and the bigger cause and the, again, anointed cause, if they could just think more like that, of what if we are very open-handed, especially with this generation, ironically, uh, they don't commit to places long. The average millennial is on the trajectory to have 14 jobs by the age of 40, according to Barna. <laughs> so just think of it this way. And I would say to this to business leaders, think, if you're gonna have these people for just a few years, maybe it's forcing you to think, either you could just hate that forever and maybe never attract them, or just shift your game plan to, we're gonna create the best launching ministry or business that when you come and work here, it pours into you so much. And I would say, if you create that kind of culture, they won't wanna leave as soon. Cause they're like, I don't know if it's gonna have this kind of culture anywhere else. But even if you do launch them and that you lose them, yeah, they'll, you're going to have a culture that's going to attract better young leaders that have a higher calling or higher uh, tenacity for like high, high standards to replace that person. You're going to create a culture. I, I think of Jack Welch with GM, like that guy's launching all these CEOs, but it doesn't mean it's not a scarcity mindset. It means you're going to attract others. Whenever you lose one, you're going to find someone else or mature, you've probably been maturing someone else in their place. And so you think it's more about creating that culture of discipleship. Instead, uh, which comes with church planning, which comes with uh, campus ministry or college ministry. And sometimes we have the luxury and to neglect that, I guess, in the church world. And that's kind of hurting us a lot right now. So I'm talking with Grant Sheldon. He's been kind enough to give me a few minutes talking about his book, The Passion Generation. Uh, in addition to the book, we've talked about it quite a bit. You also lead the Initiative Network. So give me a thumbnail sketch. What is the Initiative Network? It's like a Christian Illuminati for young Christians. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah, no, it's like a, it's a, if you're familiar with um, William Wilberforce with uh, the Clapham sect, um, mm -hmm. he kind of had this crew of young Christian, I mean, I don't know if they were young necessarily, but Christian diverse leaders that weren't just pastors, but some of them were mathematicians, some of them were members of parliament, some of them were brewers. Some of them were uh, in the acting and actress world. Uh, they had all these diverse people. They actually even like lived in the same neighborhood together. Um, I, I don't have a neighborhood yet, um, but I would. What I do is I just do retreats and uh, trips to Israel and um, some trips we're looking at with compassion to um, kind of third world countries to just, I just try to get some of the most diverse, dynamic young Christians from across the nation that are in the, the Hollywood scene and the actor and actresses world and modeling world or the nonprofit world, the church world, the Nashville music scene, the fashion industry in New York. Like, if they are Christians and they're representing Christ in culture, um, I like to get those type of Christians that are have national influence to build a community around them. Because I do think one, they they are if they say leadership is lonely. I found uh, leadership for young Christians in a, this culture in this generation when everyone's kind of leaving the church is extremely lonely, and so. Trying to get them together is very powerful for them. But also, I, I, I see a lot of conversation around unity and racial reconciliation and uh, a lot of that kind of stuff. And it's great, but it's usually a lot of 40, 50, 60-year-olds on racial reconciliation panels. And in my city, I've seen a lot of pastors coming together post a crisis, whether it's a hurricane or a shooting or immigration, uh, stuff like big things have to happen in order to get our pastors together. Um, and I just don't want to, I don't want to wait for a crisis to happen to get our generation of Christians together. I want to just look at what Christ said in John 17, and make us one five times, perfectly one. 
so that the world would see Jesus through the church. And so what I've been saying is instead of responding in unity to crisis in our 50s, what if we responded in unity to Christ in our 20s? And just see that so that when crisis hits, we've had decades of relationship when we're leading the church. Very cool. Very cool. I, I was yeah. in the dark on exactly what it did. I had a yeah, friend. Yeah, it's pretty private, and it's it's not that public because it's kind of a private invite group. But it's such a it's such a beautiful thing. It really is an incredible group. Well, I, I think I, years ago I knew a guy. I can't remember his name right now, but he rented a house at Sundance and would just do this informal invite of Christian uh, artist types and actor types that were at Sundance for the festival. Uh, to come hang out and for no other reason to build relationships with others believers in that world. Um, yeah. So, so I, I think that's very, very cool. Well, you've been a, you're a good man. I appreciate you carving out the time. The book is the passion generation. You can Google it. It's on Zondervan. Uh, Grant Skeldon's his name. He also leads the initiative network. If somebody wanted to reach out to you, like website, email, what would it be? Yeah. For speaking, um, it's just grantskeldon.com. And maybe if you have a young leader that um, if you feel like making a, a big impact uh, on a national scale that should be plugged in, um, initiativenetwork.com. And then, yeah, the book is on Amazon, just the passion generation. Yeah, that's it. Thank you, Phil. I knew that would be a treat. Thanks to Grant Skeldon for being part of today's episode. Uh, make sure you look for his book. You can go online. I think the publisher is Zondervan. It is millennials, but it's called The Passion Generation, and that's Grant Skeldon, S-K-E-L-D-O-N. Uh, and you can look for him online as well at grantskeldon.com. The Giving Leader, the podcast, is also sponsored by The Giving Church, our consulting group, thegivingchurch.com. You can go there and download a free book. It's called The Coming Generosity Tsunami, and it looks at our studies into giving patterns and how they impact faith-based nonprofits and churches in North America especially. My name's Phil Ling. Thanks for being part of the journey today, and I look forward to speaking with you on the next episode of The Giving Leader.